Hi, I'm Jeremy Leslie. Welcome to episode 28 of the Mag Culture Podcast. It's a pretty dull, wet day in the middle of February, but at least the days are getting longer now. Plus, we have two excellent guests to brighten your day. One's a magazine maker, the other's a keen magazine observer. The first is John Holt, the man behind the remarkable Law magazine. Its 10th issue was our recent magazine of the month. He shares with us the passion for England and Englishness that drives his project. Our second guest, Paul Gorman, possesses a similarly strong passion, this time for the twists and turns of pop culture. You might know him for his book about the face and for the Tear It Up exhibition at London's Somerset House a few years back. He takes us on a trip back to the 70s and Street Life magazine. But first, Mag Culture shop manager and writer Danielle Mustard is here with me. Hi, hello. How are you doing? I'm very good, despite the weather, yes. It's miserable. It's very, very miserable, but uh, there's still be some people in the shop, mm-hmm. so that's uh, that's keeping us busy. They come in here for shelter? or uh, <laughs> Shelter and magazines. Yes, yes. yes, it's very warm in here. It's warm and insulated with it all that is. paper. It is, it's very cosy. So we're going to look through a few recent arrivals that have... Um, Jumped out at us. We are, yes, uh, yes. I've got one here, but you go first. What, what, what have you got on the table? Yeah, so um, I grabbed a couple of magazines, probably the two most recent in terms of bits and pieces that I've taken home with me. Um, so the first is uh, Travel Mag Good Place. Uh, that's the second issue. And I've also got the third issue of uh, La Nueva Carne as well. Mm-hmm. Both very different. So I'll start with The Good Place. Um, We had the first issue in at the end of last year, um, but it went out quite quickly, so I didn't have much of a chance to to sit down with it. So it's nice, actually, to see the second issue and and have a bit of time to properly engage with it and take it home. It's frustrating sometimes, isn't it? Because a new magazine will come in, and sometimes they... they do shift so fast that we yeah. don't get a chance to stop. Absolutely, and you'll have your eye on it and you'll be like, you'll make a mental note and often I will take a magazine off, have it on the desk for a day or two. Uh, you know, it, it just it gets busy in the shop and then suddenly they've gone and mm-hmm. you're like, ah, I've mm-hmm. missed it, you know? So yeah, it's, it's great to be able to sit down with this second issue um, and just really interesting to, to see a new launch, a new travel launch um, that's kind of come out during the pandemic. I think that's really kind of the reason that I was uh, kind of intrigued by it as well. And where is it travelling to? Uh, so there's a number of different places. Um, it goes to, there's a big piece on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. So we meet, um, I think it's one of the oldest families or perhaps the oldest family who come from the island, uh, the McDonald's, of course. Mm-hmm. There's a piece on Marseille, which is a place I've visited quite a lot recently. So that's really nice. Um, New York, Mongolia, Chile, uh, Greenland. Uh, so yeah, a, re- a real mixed bag. And very um, envy-inducing at the moment. Well, you've been to Marseille, but there's a lot of places on that list that you, yeah, not many people are going to be visiting. So it, I mean, is that the appeal partly that it's just lovely to visit places? Virtually? Yeah, I mean that, that's what's quite interesting actually is sitting and seeing how they're framing travel now that you know we are where we are. Um, and you know there is the, they're not shy of kind of still kind of looking at those faraway places and there are places in the UK there are places that are very local as well but they they mix it up so it's not just kind of like like a few mags did where it was like right we're just going to focus on the home countries or, or somewhere really local they have a great balance and um, yeah so I think they've they've done it really well in terms of having a mix of you know looking at places in England in the UK um, and also further away places. I think what's great as well is they look at places you can reach by train, which is one thing I noticed. Um, so the piece on Marseille, for example, 
instead of the first thing they list being like, um, you know, you can take a, a plane direct from London to, to Marseille. It's, hey, you know, check out um, if the Eurostar is running their direct train. If not, you can still take a train to here, mm-hmm. to Paris, and you can change. If that doesn't work, you know, here's a plane. So it's just framing things in the kind of place where we're at now, you know, post-pandemic and also taking into account the climate crisis and things with travel. So I think it's been done very cleverly, yeah. Mm-hmm. A good number of the team are from the Lonely Planet, the magazine that closed recently. They so, are indeed. Yeah. So again, another reason to kind of pick it up. So I think there's, there's certainly three, perhaps four mm-hmm. members of the Lonely Planet team um, who have been kind of reassembled and, and, and put together for for good place. So they know their stuff. They do, they do. They're well-travelled. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I found it a really good read. I've still got a few pages at the end to catch up with, but um, the sections are really short and snappy. It's really colourful. There's a lot of great photography in there. And one piece that really kind of stuck out as well was they, they have a kind of section called Diverted, um, which does kind of take into account what's you know what's been happening over the last few years and the, and the way that people's holidays have either been cancelled or people haven't been able to travel at all. They've done something really fun with that. One piece was uh, somebody travelling through the uh, their local specialist food store. So it's like a Spanish food store. So instead of actually going to Spain, um, they've just gone to Borough Market and chatted to the person who owns it and kind of like looked at the different traditional foods. So that was that was great. I thought that was a really good nice idea. Nice touch. Yeah. Talking of Spain. Talking of Spain, magazine number two. Yeah, La Nueva Carne, um, the, the new meat or the, the fresh meat, uh, which is a magazine that comes out of Barcelona. We wrote quite a long review of the last issue on the journal and I think we were both very impressed by the quality mm. of that one and, and they're back with issue three and it's impressed you again. Yeah, yeah. It's. Um, I remember in the first came the, well the first issue that came into the shop, which was actually their second issue. Um, I took that home very quickly. That one was themed beauty, and this one, the third issue, uh, which has got a really nice black cover. I'm not normally a fan of black covers, but this one works. Um, it's quite shiny. And it's, and it's got lots of sort of em, uh, embossed. I don't know. Yeah. Tactile. Uh, it works varnishes. when the light hits it. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's got a really nice gold title, so that kind of stands out as well. But yes, this third issue is um, is themed faith and is very interesting. The, the key to what they do, I mean, the, uh, I guess the name refers to this, the, it's about the relationship between the virtual world and the real world. And the, yes. So, yes. So, I mean, it's looking at these big themes, big, big themes, I mean, money yeah. and, and faith, uh, religion and stuff, but in terms of the digital sphere, and... Uh, they do it really well. They do, yeah. It's um, Their tagline is humans and their virtualities. Um, and so in this one, they look at things, really, really big ideas and big concepts, things like the collapse of faith, uh, the death of God, um, you know, uh, artificial intelligence and the idea of the singularity, things like that, Bitcoin, rituals, astrology. Um, so there's so much in there. And it's just... It, it's just really easy to read as well. Um, it's, the language is very accessible, but it still goes into real depth. It's just, I, I, I've just found with each issue that I've picked up, uh, I'm just sucked into it straight away. So as I said, two very different magazines there. Mm, yes. I'm going to head off in another direction with, 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 the, with the one that I literally, I think um, early today this turned up. There's it did, the new, it um, The 86th edition, which is remarkable in itself, of the, the monthly music magazine Electronic Sound which, as the name implies, is a magazine about electronic music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they lead with soft sell. And what's interesting, I mean, a lot of what they do, 
especially in the covers, is 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 nostalgic. They look mm. back at bands from the golden ages of, of of electronic sounds, electronic music, which tends to be the eighties and nineties, I guess. So we, we've, there's been the Pet Shop Boys and and New Order and bands yeah, like this. Yeah. And now they're doing Soft Cell. But what's interesting this time around is that this is actually as much as looking back at the heyday of Soft Cell. It's actually it's the return of Soft Cell. Yes. And it comes with a seven-inch single. Which is apparently music. purple as well inside. Oh, I haven't it? popped one open yet, but it sounds kind of glorious. Well, the covers are always gloriously coloured, and this is a, a bright yellow cover. Uh, it's well-designed, it's well put together, it's made by people, again, I, th- I forget which music title, but I think they're, um, they're people that have been around in the music publishing business for some time. So again, a bit like what you're saying with Good Place, they're people with sound experience in publishing who are applying their skills to a, a smaller independent project. But I'm a big fan of this, and every time it com- comes, there's you know, soft sell is fine, but there's also well, there's uh, Bonobo, which will appeal to you, I know. Yes, often, yes. often playing in the shop. Indeed. Kate Le Bon. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's a mixture. Anyway, I'm a big, big fan of, of their coverage, and it's it's refreshing to see there's quite a few music magazines that are new and and covering today's scene. Um, and we're going to be hearing more about music magazines at the end of this podcast, but it's just worth noting. Yeah, one that's definitely. Around now. Yeah, it's uh, it's had a lot of hype this issue as well. There's been a few people getting in touch, so that's uh, yeah. I think it'll. I think it won't. It won't be on the shelf for long. There's another one. If we don't, if if, if we blink, we'll miss it. Yeah, indeed, exactly. <laughs> Before we move on to the interviews, just a couple of uh, notes to, to share. First of all, congratulations to Monocle on their 150th issue this month. They'll be celebrating more formally next month, which, uh, which will mark their 15th year. Uh, I looked back on the journal for our first mention of the magazine and was quite dismayed to read, and I quote, exactly how founder Tyler Brule will avoid it becoming another expensive toy to be sold on remains to be seen. How wrong can he be? Um, so congratulations to everyone there on reaching this milestone and look out for a special episode of the podcast soon marking uh, that big anniversary. And a little Mag Culture update. We'll have news soon of our next Mag Culture live event, so keep an eye on the Mag Culture Journal. Or better still, go there and sign up to our weekly We Love Magazines newsletter. And finally, we have our Flat Plan Masterclass coming up very soon. If you've got ambitions to publish your own magazine, this two-day session will be the perfect kickoff. Again, check the Mag Culture Journal. I was very excited when the 10th issue of Law magazine suddenly arrived recently. We've been following the project since we covered issue 3 back in 2013 when I wrote... What's particularly exciting is the way the content and design seamlessly combine to create a beautifully paced, no-nonsense, adrenaline rush of image and text. Uh, And I went on to quote editor John Holt saying his magazine was for those who can appreciate and relate to the stylistic value of real everyday Britain. I'm looking forward to digging into that more with John, who joins us here today. Welcome, John. You're right, Jeremy. It's a real uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for joining us. I've been following uh, law, as I say, in a... I mean, I, you know, if, if you started me going, I could just talk and talk, but I'm keen to hear from you. Where, where did the magazine come from? There's been 10 issues. What, what was your thinking 10 issues ago when you started the project? I trained as a chef originally mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, became a bit disillusioned with that. Um, kind of, I, when I left school, I went to a, a four-star hotel in Cambridge um, and uh, when you walk through the doors and you saw a big dome ceiling with a chandelier and someone playing a piano, you know, out the front it all seemed very impressive and like, you know, quite a 
big step to, from someone to school to go to a place like that, you know. Um, so I was working in the kitchens there, but it wasn't behind the scenes, you know, wasn't all that it was sort of made out to be from the front maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so over the years, like working really hard, getting to parties late when people were leaving, like, you know, getting tired, like crashing cars, like um, <laughs> um, got run down a bit really and kind of um, thought that you know, before it's too late, I want to just divert and explore creativity in another way. Um, and um, so I went to art college and then um, I studied fine art on a national diploma, and um, which was great. It was fun. And um, my next door neighbour was an artist, um, like did oil paint portraits, real like, nice actually. He's moved now, but... He said to me over the fence one day, if I was to give you any advice, if you go to study something that you can't teach yourself. And um, I thought that was, it was a good bit of advice, you know, because I thought I'm going to be paying a lot of money here, like fine art, like I can just do that, you know, anytime. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to study fashion design because then I'll learn a skill that perhaps I can't teach myself. Um, so I went to Brighton to study fashion design. And um, it turns out it weren't a great bit of advice, really, because um, really I think university is for, it's just to have a period of time to explore what you're into. And it's just to have that like block of time to kind of really investigate ideas. Um, so perhaps if I did do fine art, I just had longer just to kind of experiment with ideas, but I decided to do fashion and it was kind of trying to learn a lot of the technical side, but I never really gelled with it. It was um, sort of in one ear, out the other ear, a lot of you know, time at university trying to find your medium and it was, you know, it didn't take me long to realise that dot and cross pattern cutting paper and like, you know, trying to thread a sewing machine was not my way of working. <laughs> I really struggled with it. Um, so I was always interested in image and um, writing. Um, so I thought for the final project, you had to make a collection or a product um, and I couldn't really make a collection. So I thought I'd make a product. What's that product going to be? Maybe I'll make a magazine. It's a good you know, medium to um, put words and images together. So I thought that, and then for the final project, I thought, what is this magazine going to be? Like, you know, I'm on a fashion course, there have to be clothes involved, and I think you kind of, perhaps with fashion, you can get lost in it a bit. And on the course, I definitely struggled with how I fit into the fashion industry. Um, You know, it was kind of, I think, often likes to protect itself as this bubble that's impenetrable and kind of like slightly um, alienating and like... um, often pretentious and um, I couldn't because I couldn't sew and all my classmates doing this amazing stuff so how do I fit into fashion I don't understand but then I saw a talk by Jason Evans the photographer a real hero of mine who who um, had an exhibition in Brighton called Nothing Is In The Place and it, it um, introduced me to a lot of 90s documentary style photographers um, Wolfgang Tillmans Nigel Shafran Corinne Day um, these sort of people um, I was really blown away by that images in this exhibition um, they were photographing their friends, just people around them. Um, it was less about fashion and more about style, really. Um, and Jason explained the difference to me. He said, fashion is an industry, style is an inherent quality, and I'm much more interested in style than fashion. And when he said that, I was like, wow, like, I don't have to worry about, I'm on a fashion course, I don't have to worry about fashion, I just think about style mm-hmm. and what I'm into. Did you realise at that point that that was something you'd always been into? Yeah, I guess that I'd never really thought about it, but then... When I started to think about my style and what I was into, you know, at the time there wasn't, I can't really remember a lot of independent magazines that was exploring that sort of subject, you know. There was, you know, leading like uh, fashion magazines, you know, your ID, your days and Confused, like, you know, these amazing like, you know, style Bibles, I guess you could say. But 
But um, at the time, they weren't really talking to me and my friends and what I was into. And I can't imagine any of my friends from the small cluster of villages that I grew up in reading any of those magazines. They couldn't relate to them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't feel like picking one up, you know, at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, then there was like Vice magazine that was kind of like, you know, it was documenting Britain in a way and kind of like, but it was quite... Um, I don't know, some of the stuff was quite vile, if you like, yeah, at the yeah, time. Like, yeah. be, it's quite um, sensationalist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, what, what, yeah. It, what, what time are we talking about? The, the early... uh, yeah, I'd launched issue one in uh, 2011, so okay. when it was starting to think about these ideas, about 2010, I think. And, um, yeah, I guess subconsciously, I never really thought that I was interested in style, but when I start, started to think about it and forget about fashion, and then I can look at something and, and I can say that is my style or that's what I'm into. It can be a wall, it can be um, yeah, a, pain, a pair of trainers, it can be uh, a sign, it can be anything. So I started to think about um, things that I've grown up with and um, fishing and um, you know putting a float on a line and the size hook you use and like the different fluorescent uh, tips you get on floats, uh, the different weight of line, like the rods you get, the people that go fishing, the catch, the catch pictures on the side of the bank holding their trophies from the weekend that they put on Facebook on a Monday. And, and you know, the camera they wear to avoid detection from the carp, like how they tiptoe around the bank, like how they spy on these fish and, um, uh, you know, riding uh, BMX or like a, you know, a, a mountain bike or digging dirt jumps that get knocked down and like grown over and then you go back years later and it's like they were never even there. Or um, the people in the local market that like, you know, they would never even think about the word cool, cool or what they're dressing like. They're just wearing something that they like that's convenient to go to the market, you know. Um, but, but they have a style. They have they, a style, yeah. And that's what I'm fascinated in really is like people that don't even know how cool they are know how like you know they're just doing their thing really um and uh i think i remember a um a quote about wolfgang tillman's work and it says his subjects are all complete strangers but they're all related to one aesthetic and that really struck me you know you go to his exhibition and i think i went to one at serpentine around that time and it was like a picture of like a, a toucan and then like an athlete on a running track and then like you know really disparate um, subjects but you could tell that there's all Wolfgang Tillman's work you know it's all under that umbrella it's very recognisable so with law I guess they're trying to explore my sense of style and the style that I'm into um, and uh, try to yeah so like I say I can look at things that describe that style but I'm trying to create this world that is um, that is is law that is um, that is recognisable that all the content in there is um part of the same uh yeah mood if you like it's what yeah i look at magazines and, and i think of them as like little worlds of their own they are their own kind of self-contained yeah. in a way bubbles yeah. I mean, and, and they can have all sorts of different characteristics and and yeah. and uh ambitions and, and different things and there, there's something very particular about law and, and you've described it well in terms of style and and, and the sort of natural cool that people can exude but it's also, it's a very English thing, which presumably comes from your personal background and growing up in Cambridgeshire, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. the um, Fens, yeah, the mighty Fens. Is that based on your personal experience or is there something very unique about Englishness? So my mum's a uh, London girl, she's from the east end of London, you know, born in Whitechapel Hospital. Um, my dad is a Burnley boy, um, grew up in Colne in Burnley. Um, and... Um, I grew up in uh, the Fens, which is a flat farmland um, 
you know, between Cambridge and Peterborough. Um, and, um, you know, it's one of those places that you, uh, you, you don't realise how interesting it is until you leave, I guess. Or um, I think, um, you know, at the time when I was growing up, you know, through the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, through the 2000s, you, you don't really appreciate how special your era is. But then, you know, then you look back and everything that was going on and how unique it was and, like, you know, how there was this clash of different sounds and different, you know, movements. And um, because we we uh, lived in villages, you had to have a car to, to, to get to see your friends. So then, like, what sort of car are you going to get and where are you going to meet up and what are you going to listen to? And um, I don't know, it's just a real, like... Um, I think it's such a such a special like yeah just vivid clash of sounds and imagery that I grew up with and then you know my mum um she just really uh never hurt a fly in her life like such a a kind and caring and you know considerate and genuine like um love for this country and love for um uh for people really I've you know I've seen her like um you know stop like homeless people from fighting or like you know she she uh she just wants everyone to to be good and happy and like well and uh um that kind of um attention for people and wanting to to care for people I think is something that come through in the work and my dad is quite he's a you know he's got massive hands like wallers hands you know he's a dry stone waller like he, he grew up in Burnley out there and you know he he worked for the council on different things over the years, but then, you know, he's come back to his walling now and we've got, like, all dry stone walls in the gardens, like, the only one probably in, like, <laughs> East Anglia, you know? Like, um, but um, he didn't ever like us, you know, watching TV or, you know, liked us to be outdoors and liked us, you know, I know very well about earwigs and I know very well about woodlice and I know, like, <laughs> you know... He, he taught you well. Yeah, yeah. 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 But just... Uh, yeah, just he always wants to be out exploring, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, like that sort of um, love for Britishness and uh, in all its different forms, and um, yeah, pride in that, and a care, and a and a, and a care, and a, mm-hmm. and a consideration, and want to show it in a positive, united light, and not to show it in a distasteful or nasty or you know. Yeah, it's, it has a very positive outlook, but it's also some of the way you're describing it there. If people haven't seen it, they might think it's an exercise in nostalgia. But actually, one of the things that's fascinating about it is that it has everything you say. I mean, I can't recall now immediately, but I'm sure you've done something about angling and yeah. uh, and that and that and that that sort yeah. of area of traditional sort of yeah. leisure, weekend leisure, yeah. men's time. Sort of. yeah. But 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 equally, you're just as likely to have something very contemporary in terms of musicians or trends or or, or, or modern Englishness. Yeah, it's really important to me, I think. I'm not really just interested in keep rehashing nostalgia. Like, you know, it's easy enough to do, but um, it's not not really the motivation to making law. Like, you know, to me, it's about building these archives of, you know, of what's happening now, like for the future. I'm not looking back so much, like be influenced by, you know, my upbringing and like, you know, things we used to do. Um, but it's very important to me to make archives of what's going on now for the future. You know, who's going to be, you know, looking back and nostalgically of what's going on now? You know, I want to be making the work now. Um, but it'd break my heart, basically, if if 
if I wish I could travel the length and breadth of this country and document every single shop, like every single market, every everything. Like if I had the time to do that, that's what I would do. Like just document mm-hmm. things like constantly, you know, every shopping centre, like every high street, every um, every market square. Like there's someone selling DVDs in a market for the last 20 years and then, you know, that um, former media's out of fashion and they have to shut their markets on. There was never any document of them ever being there. It's like, it breaks my heart, you know, so... I, I try to cover as much ground as I can in law. Um, <laughs> but yeah, only so much you can do, you know. Well, there is, but, but it ha- I mean, it's definitely, it's grown from, I mean, the, the, the early issues were single, single uh, magazines, maybe 60 pages. They were often, as you say, visual taxonomies of, of, of something like uh, people selling CDs or, yeah. or uncool graffiti or, or sort of things that, that w- wouldn't necessarily strike you, but because you see a set of them together it marks as, as a, a record of that as yeah. a thing. Yeah, I, I don't know where it come from, like a few different things really, but, um, you know, um, when you, you start to see the same thing over and over again and then you, you realise that that is quite unusual, that does describe, like, the time we live in or, you know, um, you know, like I say, back at home, it's in the country, it's just, you know, flat farmland um, and... You know, we've done archives on, say, the road signs that you get there because um, I love how each roundabout is on a road sign is different, has different amount of turnings, you know, and the, and um, I love how the shape of that is different on different road signs, you know. Um, I guess growing up subconsciously, that road sign was one of the most, like, modernist things that I could, that I was seeing every day, you know, amongst all the, you know, black peat pitches and fenden fields, there was these, you know, mm-hmm. very digital... Uh, uh, that's that's a re- that's a really interesting point because the, the, what's coming across is is that all these sort of everyday things for you are really loaded with memory and yeah, 100%, feeling and yeah, emotion 100%, yeah mm-hmm. real bad yeah what we've done water towers before like I guess um, you know um, I guess that's quite a, a direct reference to Bernard Vesha and Hilla Vesha like their water tower series I guess it's that's kind of a direct reference to that but you know the water towers they photograph very different to the water towers that I photograph or that I grew up with you know Mm -hmm. um so to me they look like UFO spaceships back where I where I live you know where I was where I grew up um but but uh yeah those archives are you know hubcaps that you get on the side of the road like you know always you know, we'd, we'd cycle down the the, the the Fenland tracks, you know, Dad used to take us out on bike rides and, you know, we'd say, oh, like, how much further, how much further? And he'd say, oh, it's only around the corner, it's just around the corner, and, you know, keep going and going. And then, uh, you know, at the time, I think we found it was quite a chore, you know, but then you ride through the, the countryside now and what pleasure it is, you know. Um, but on those trips, you would see, like, you know, a discarded hubcap from a Renault Clio or uh, something like that, mm-hmm. you know. And then um, years later... Um, I was driving through Highbury and I saw this man's house there, Pete Stanley, his name was, uh, a man who owned this house and um, the school next door they'd erected quite a nasty metal fence and um, he didn't really like it and there was roadworks out the front of his house and he had a bump and every time a car went over it, the hubcat would come off. Um, and when he <laughs> and when he when he used to go to the shop or he'd go out the front door and then he'd pick the hubcap up and throw it in his garden and uh, he built he had this big pile of hubcaps discarded from these roadworks and then he didn't like this fence so he he um 
he, he tied them up to the to the fence and covered the whole fence in these hubcaps, you know. And I just happened to be driving past there one day. I was like, "No, you're joking me!" And it's like this whole different, like whole um, collection of, mm-hmm. of of every hubcap you ever dreamed of, you know. And I just thought, it's like, what's the chances of that? I couldn't believe it. So I knocked on his door and said, "You know, like I've always wanted to to document like the different hubcaps you get, you know." Um, and he says, "Yeah, no problem." Um, so I went back with photographer. Um, um, you know, there's a bit of wood in his garden. I think we put a bit of black sugar paper over the top, and then took the hubcaps off one by one, and and then um, shot them all on film. God knows why we shot them on film, but uh, shot them all on film, and uh, and yeah, that was in issue three. And um, you know, um, I thanked him very much, and um, he had one prize hubcap, which was like a chrome Mercedes hubcap. I've got a picture of him holding it, but he gave it to me. He said, hey, you, you have it. Uh, and he gave me his prize hubcap. But, yeah, there's, lo- there's lots of stories like this that are yeah, just yeah. very, very personal, you see. But I guess um, it's just, just things that subconsciously logged in my mind over the years of things that I'd like to document. And then some things rise to the surface, some things mm-hmm. don't. Um, but, yeah, just just uh, depends what comes to fruition on the journey of making a magazine, I guess. Those early issues were like, what you know, one volume, one 64-page magazine the latest issue issue 10 comes in the form of three three mm. magazines and various bits and it's all wrapped up in a it's, it's something uh, much more kind of um i don't know collectible much more special yeah it's been a long time cover, coming what, yeah. and it's also it's for sale rather than being a free yeah. magazine yeah give us a little background to the, the new one so it has been a while been five years now since the last issue mm. uh, which was issue nine in 2017 um yeah, shortly after Releasing that issue, um, my brother took his own life, and um, that obviously just knocked us all for, let alone six, 26, 26 forever. Um, and um, it's been five years now, and um, you know, obviously, you know, that journey has been, yeah, just fought with ups and downs, and trying to keep the carriage on the tracks and trying to keep things moving um you know i think i started uh law for my final project at university and i saw you know there's other uh, empires that started from university but i thought that you know no one's going to work harder than me so i throw myself into my work like to i guess distract myself but just to you know I just worked morning, noon and night to try to get this thing off the ground and to try to keep it going and to try to honour my brother and to try to, um, you know, document all the things that we'd grown up with. Um, and um, it, uh, somewhere along the last five years, I sort of realised that um, actually I don't want law to be uh, this empire, um, this bigger thing, um, you know, just spend a lot of my time like managing people and not having a chance to make the work that I want to make, and um, realise that actually all I really want to do is just make good work and and document the special upbringing that we were very blessed with, and try to m- make important marks. And um, n- you know, I can't do anything to change the past, but what I can do is try to make a mark now and try to you know make important work with substance that like tells my brother's story and like you know tells our story so um i've realized that over this whole journey of the last five years and um 
yeah, to, so you can't really stop on issue nine, can you? <laughs> so you, you've got to make the attempt, really. Um, and uh, so I was determined to do it. And, you know, um, it, was a, it was a battle. It was a real, a real battle to try to sustain a, a business and to keep it going um, and uh, to, to, to get this content over the line. Some people, you know, shot things for the magazine four years ago or, you know, and they're... I don't know if any of them really knew what was going on or, you know, what was going through, but, you know, they're very patient and, like, you know, nothing means more to me now than to get the magnet after waiting for four years and they, they, they get it and they say to me, it's worth the wait, you know, and they're happy. It's a lot of pleasure to wait that long for something they shot four years ago. You know, we mm -hmm. stood outside Whitechapel Mosque with a colorama with James Pearson Howes. And uh, we're shooting the lads as they come out of prayer, you know, with their box fresh night TNs on and the amazing pictures that have just been sitting on for a year. And, um, you know, to, to now to wait and uh, to bring it out and for them to say to me that, you know, that was worth a wait for them. That means a lot. Um, it was not worth the wait for me, um, you know, but I had to do it. I had to get over, over the line. And uh, it's hard to say that I'm proud, I'm proud of it because... Um, because uh, I always feel like something's missing, but um, I, I, I am trying to allow myself to be to be proud of getting it over the line, and uh, I am um, confident in what it's got to say because it had to say um, a specific, it had to feel right, and it had to not that I can do my brother justice, but it had to um, it had to um, ha have the right feeling to it. Um, so that's where the the um, the free the idea for the free magazines come from um i work with the designers all purpose um shout out to the boys alex ted and will absolute legends um you know they really took this body of work that i've been building over the last five years by a scruff of the neck and they dragged it over the line and they wouldn't let it lie and um yeah, without them, I don't know if it would ever have come into existence, you know. Um, special shout-out also to Sarah Merkenschlager, my, you know, uh -huh. lower sidekick who, who stuck with me the whole way through. And uh, and lots of many people over the years have been a massive part of, integral part of law. Um, but it was, uh, we got a dummy made, we got a, of the, the, all the content together. And uh, I've always thought that I wanted law to have a spine because, you know, you think it's a tried and tested you know, format, you know, sometimes, not that it really bothers me, but sometimes people say, I like that zine you make, you know, referring to law, and like, that's that's fine, but it's something maybe about the term zine that feels a bit more off the cuff or a bit, a bit, um, you know, faster pace maybe mm -hmm. or a bit more frequent or, but these, these things take time. It's a lot of, you know, there's not one millimetre that you've not considered, you know. Um, so I always thought I wanted to have a spine. So, you know, A, like, um, people wouldn't call it a zine. <laughs> and, and B, uh, it could finally put its elbows out on the shelf yeah. and be like, this is law and, you know, this is what, you know, um, this is what we're about. But that, I think that's a, a very common sort of aspiration of, 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 of people publishing, to, to reach the, the, the level of spine. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Just the weight to it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and... and um, Obviously, the time and the, the emotion that has, has gone into it, which comes across in everything you're saying, and I'm very sorry to hear about your brother, but, but what comes across as somebody reading it is that it is a 
you know the the way you've meshed that kind of emotion with the design and the content and yeah it's a really powerful thing it's, it's yeah the, the the sort of use of 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 um sort of traditional techniques in terms of um weaving or yeah, yeah. Uh, and making those banners and, and yeah, things yeah. like this to yeah. express some yeah i understand what you say in terms of not maybe the word proud is not something to use about something yeah that has yeah. happened like this yeah. but nonetheless yeah. it's it's an achievement of, yeah. of communication to yeah. express yeah, yourself yeah. like exactly. this exactly yeah yeah exactly I, I find it hard to even think about my brother you know i don't even i don't like to go there i can't you know I guess until more recently, it's almost like he's still here, you know. So I don't like to think about it because, you know, I, I guess I like to pretend that he is still here. But yeah, the uh, the layout um, wanted wanted it to have a spine, wanted it to have a spine. When we got the dummy back, got it back, sat down with all purpose with the boys. We f- I flicked through it, put it down. I said, no, it doesn't feel right, you know. So I went to do some more research. The issue was on folklore faith and unity it started off being on folklore and then it made people think very like you know sort of pagan rituals and this kind of stuff which is cool like you know and uh, I think there's been a resurgence of interest in that which is great but I wanted to call it folklore faith and unity because it helped to people think in a more contemporary way you know um, so you know to have faith in something you know, and unity coming together, believing in an idea, I think are part of folklore. So folklore, faith and unity help people to think like that. So I went to uh, Cecil Sharp House where they have a library there, a folklore library. And um, I, asked, I said that what I was interested in, you know, different. I was looking for different print references and um, I sat in there for a few days and, you know, they had got all sorts of pamphlets and different stuff out for me. And uh, there was one, it was like a almost a book that I saw there and it was a cloth case and you... You opened up the the cover. There wasn't much of a spine on it. You opened up the cover, and um, and then you you unwrapped it. You opened um, unwrapped the other side, and then you you took out the the, the pamphlets that was inside, and then that just struck me. I thought, wow, like such a like, almost like a procession, like almost like a ritual in itself to unravel to some unwrap something like this to read it. You know, and I was like, that's it. It makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. it if you want to read this magazine and you have to invest the time to open it, to look at it, you know, you can't pick it up, chuck it down, you know, if everything is considered, so you have to set aside time and unwrap it. So I went back to all purpose and I said, I found the references and I said to the boys, you know, it was quite, I don't know, a long three, six months down the line designing it, you know, and, um, sat there across Zoom and I'm telling them, you know, like this is, I think we need to do this because it feels right. If you mm-hmm. know, um, and they never ever once batted an eyelid. They never ever once complain. They never ever once push back. They say, "You're right, John. You know this. It should feel like that." And we, I think, it's the right decision. So that's what we'll do. And they only ever wanted to to. I guess when you're designing anything, or you know, you you want it to feel the end result to be how you want you want it to feel. You want it, how you want it to say. And they only ever was interested in making that final magazine after all these years the best it could possibly be. And we turned over literally every single stone that we could have done. And um, and we got there in the end. So it's not... The magazines itself are still in the same law format with the, the staples on. And I like that because you can interleave the, the, the weights of paper in a different page. So we still have the gloss and matte and the spot colour, which has always been a, a signature of law, you know. Um, we, you still have the middle spread that you can open up and each one is like a double-sided poster, you know, which, you know, references growing up reading match and shoot football magazines and taking out the staples and putting gigs on the wall <laughs> or, you know, a Yaboa or 
And um, so you still have all those elements of law. You still have the front cover. You still have the back cover. Um, and there's a few other little bits in here that reference folklore. There's uh, my dad has like you know dry stone walling pamphlets at home from the dry stone walling association and you know a lot of these sort of folkloric church pamphlets that you get they cut they have like a sort of a blue or green or red sugar paper cover and then they have the staple with the um the white a cheap a4 inside it so then each of the three magazines has its own sort of um pamphlet reference sugar paper color um each of the three magazines has its own feel to it so the first one you know it's got a uh, jeremy deller in uh, a heresy um mask um the back the back cover's got pink rosettes on it. It's quite playful. I think the colour, the sugar paper, and that's green. Um, so it's quite you know a playful start. The middle magazine is a bit darker, a bit more moody. It's got um, King Crawl walking on water and submerged in water by Charlotte Patmore. Uh, it, that in itself is a is um is a really special story to me because I went to see Archie play at a pub in Brighton when he was seventeen in a tiny room in a pub and I was completely spellbound by by his music. And I went to see him afterwards in the smoking area, sat on a picnic bench, huddled round with his friends, um, packets of Amberleaf out across the table and said that was unbelievable, actually. And then I said, can I get your address? Because that was just after I made issue one. And he wrote his address on the inside of my camouflage coat. And uh, and um, we kept in touch over the years and wanted to work together and finally made it happen in, in this issue, you know, 10 years later. And uh, he's wearing the same coat that um, he wrote his address on 10 years ago. So it's just all these st these stories and things that, you know, they, over the years, like trying to make them happen, make them happen, make them happen. And, and uh, yeah, I guess this issue does feel quite definitive because there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of uh, things that I wanted to do for ages that finally managed to make happen. And um, the final of the three magazines is Destiny and a Dove because um, we're finally um, letting go of um, this this body of work. And I guess that first chapter of law and the first chapter of my life, in a way. Um, so although the three magazines in the self don't have a spine, they come in a case that has a spine on it. So we <laughs> yeah. finally yeah. got the spine. It has yeah. the weight of it. Yeah. 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 Everything we've talked about, it's a positive uplifting despite the news around the, the origins in terms of your brother and, and your family's loss but it, it's fundamentally an uplifting project and, and, and it's an uplifting view of what Englishness is and what being English today is and it's at odds with so much of the, what else that we see and read and sort of experience in terms of Englishness you know you know, with, with, the, with the culture wars and the split over Brexit and the government at the moment and COVID, all, all these issues would, would you know, uh, you know I, I sometimes feel as someone that is born and bred London, England, you know, embarrassed to be part of this country. And yeah, I know there's a great side to the country, but I wonder what the rest of the world are looking at, looking at us yeah, and thinking, totally. what the hell is going yeah, on over there? It's embarrassing, yeah. Um, Keep shooting myself in both feet. <laughs> but the, so, so how do you reconcile those two things, the, the positive reality of day-to-day -day life and, and the, the love and... and uplifting side to to you know just being human in england yeah and and then the, the other side which is this rather vicious nasty sort of media driven one yeah i guess um it just never seems to be any good news it's just you know just another nail it you know bad news bad news bad news like you know like i say shooting yourself in both feet um and uh just always law is always tried to show like a positive uh positive just give a positive message because there's enough doom and gloom out there really and um 
so I mean for this issue in particular we worked with um, Sadie Williams um, who we studied together in Brighton we was on the same course together and um, it's wicked to still be collaborating these years later you know and um, yeah so many people like that have grown up through the magazine and um, we made a we made a banner together a big patchwork banner it's, yeah huge over six foot and it's um, I invited all the contributors to um, to make a, a patch on um the folklore, folkloric tales or stories from, from uh, where they grew up. Um, so it was my attempt to try and, you know, re reunite this uh, this island, you know, the British Isles, the, like, you know, um, maybe, um, you know, impossible task. I can't, I can't put it all back together again, but I can do my bit to try to do that. And, um, you know, I think there is a massive north-south divide and, like, you know, there isn't a lot of things that are not talked about, and and um, I think um, all I can do is try to give people a voice where I can, and give communities a voice where I can, from across the British Isles. I want to do do more, do more, do more to try and um, reattach all the parts of the country, or just do what I can, and it's just come from a sincere place. So that's all I'm trying to do, really. Well, that's exactly um, what comes across, and I think um, I think you do a great job of doing just that with law so um so thank you very much for sharing the story behind it pleasure one thing that strikes me is, is you know like with the patchwork you're you're, you're making these things yeah. you're making objects yeah. and in fact you mentioned sarah um your colleague and yeah. i mean she got in touch after I, uh, our, our review on the journal where i had wrongly stated that a particular image had been photoshopped and she's and she came back and said no we actually made that <laughs> as an object yeah. so you, so there's the magazine but you're making these things what happens yeah. to all those objects well, where, where is the patchwork yeah yeah well at a minute it's in a uh, village books in manchester on uh -huh. display okay. up there. yeah 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 but um so it, so it is on display at the moment yeah but um but uh yeah i just i just moved home and part of the reason of that is to um is to to uh clear out all the like you know the garages and like of stuff that I have there, you know, and uh, it's um, it's very important for me to to make things physically, um, you know, especially with this folkloric issue because I think you know folklore by nature is a very tactile and very like handmade element. So that's why we, you know, um, like instead of just printing a, a, a kind of a poem or we have like woven dedications in 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 the in the magazine, that, you know, we actually got woven and then mm -hmm. and then uh, photographed them after or the, yeah the patchwork banners that. You know, we made and uh, yeah, I, I uh, part of the reason of moving home is to sort all this stuff out. And one day, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to show it because, um, yeah, I can't yeah, I mean, bear, I can't bear to throw away anything. Basically, yeah, I mean, this kind of objects you're talking about are presented in the magazine as a full page image, and in the same way, it would make a fantastic kind of series of things in an exhibition of some sort. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd love to do it in a gallery. I'd love to do it one day. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, just because uh, I'm not sure, maybe perhaps just looking at an image you wouldn't appreciate the amount of time or effort that's gone into something well i didn't yeah, yeah. <laughs> i, I, I yeah. thought it was by photoshop i mean it's, it's clear yeah. that some of the banners and things yeah. that you couldn't well yeah. i mean yeah. it would almost take as long to photoshop yeah, something yeah. like that as it yeah. would to yeah. to to knit it or to, yeah. to sew it but yeah. um yeah. also things like that and it you know it does li it links into sort of um some of the things that jeremy della makes or yeah. art artists like that yeah the, the, the 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 objects to the point yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah I mean he said to me that you know he was uh, he was happy to be a part of it and that it, uh, he see a lot of similar themes to his own work and he was he was not surprised and that and pleased about that and uh, for him to say that you know 
sat sat in a pub and interview a Turner Prize winning artist. You think you'd never meet an artist like that to sit in a pub with him and interview him and put him on the cover of the magazine. You never ever think that you'd get there. Uh, so uh, yeah, high praise indeed. One final thing. I mean, so this is issue ten, and you, and you referred to it sort of being somehow sort of coming full circle and reach it. Is there an eleven? Is there? I mean, it, what's the future? Like I say, I think uh, this issue um, it, it does a uh, you know finally got round to tying up a lot of loose ends in in nice bow. Um, things that I wanted to document it's quite autobiographical you know so there's a lot of people in there you know shops I used to work in all, it's all in there and um, I feel like I kind of said what I wanted to say about that chapter in my life now and I need to try to move onwards and upwards and um, so for this next chapter I think a lot of the time I feel like I've sort of ransacked these uh, these uh, things that we document you know like I only have a certain amount of time to you know shoot something and like when you're there, it's like the best day you've ever had, you know, and like you, you just make real connections with people and then and then um, you never get a chance to go back, you know, and you, you get sidetracked and you have to move on to the next thing and the next thing. And um, I think uh, it is a big... I'd like to give more time to the subjects um, and I think that uh, is a big responsibility to have so many different, you know, contributors and try to... Uh, the, the logistics of that and, and try to... Uh, um, it's it's a lot it's a lot so I, I want to try and just um, work on uh, s- specific subjects but give them more time mm-hmm. um, and um, because yeah when when you make a magazine like this with so many different contributors and so many different subjects it does take a long time uh, Patricia Villarillo the stylist actually who's another one who's been waiting a long time for the magazine to come for, to fruition said well John maybe a magazine should take five years and you know, who's to say that it shouldn't. Well, thank you again for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. Thanks for joining us, John. After this message, we travel back to the mid-70s. London printers Park Communications play a key part in the independent publishing scene, helping ambitious magazine makers turn their dreams into reality. Take a look at the latest issues of Repost, ID, Kindling and new launch I'll Hire to get a sense of what's possible. Very different magazines, all beautifully produced. Park share our belief in reaching for the highest creative standards while working in the most environmentally friendly and sustainable manner possible. Check their website for details. Search Park Communications. Just like Mag Culture, Park love magazines and we're proud to have them sponsor this podcast. The first magazine that ever really grabbed my attention was the New Musical Express in the mid-70s. An inky tabloid printed in two colours, it provided a weekly injection of music, news and reviews. A few years later, The Face helped me link my graphic design studies with magazines. I realised people actually designed magazines. The Enemy and The Face were very different in so many ways, even though, as I later discovered, the two were edited by the same man, Nick Logan. The forgotten magazine that spanned the two was Street Life, a fortnightly coloured tabloid. I'd had it planned as one of our back issues here on the podcast, but it keeps popping up in my Instagram feed at the moment, and I thought it deserved a little more attention than I could spare as as simply a sort of quick look back at a back issue. And I figured who best to ask than Paul Gorman, who's preparing a book about the British music press that's later out this year. So a big welcome to you, Paul. 
Last time you heard your voice was when you talked around your Tear It Up show at Somerset House. May 2018. Yeah, three and a half years. And uh, lots happened since, Mm -hmm. both to the world and you've Mm -hmm. been busy, but um, how have you been? Yeah, pretty good. You know, went nuts like everyone else. Um, Maybe I haven't recovered from that yet, uh, like everyone else. But in the meantime, I published a book, a biography of Malcolm McLaren, which came out in April 2020, so right in the teeth of the first lockdown. And I've been working on a couple of other, well, many other projects, but two of which will reach fruition this year, a couple of books out this year. One in particular we're going to come to, but um, here you brought with you kindly the first issue of Street Life magazine, which is, yeah. which is the subject of our conversation here. Right. Tell us what we're looking at. Well, Street Life um, was a, a proto-lifestyle magazine, I think we'd call it, us media watchers, but it's a tabloid, it's printed on really good stock, it's got a colour cover, Got some colour pictures inside as well. Really nice reproduction. And this first issue is November 1st to 14th, 1975. Um, At the time, I was um, an avid reader of the New Musical Express, which was kind of in one of its heydays. uh, They recruited Nick Logan, uh, the later founder of The Face, Arena, etc. had recruited the best of the underground press writers in the early 70s, and they'd helped transform the New Musical Express into a much bigger offer than just covering what was in the charts. At the same time, the music industry was going through a really moribund stage. I mean, there was exciting stuff happening. I was going out and seeing gigs by people like Kevin Ayers and Kevin Coyne and everyone called Kevin, but... um, there was nothing really world-beating for younger people to grip onto. So it's that period where dinosaur acts play. I saw Pink Floyd at Wembley and yeah. Paul, all of that Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. It's all a bit grown up. It was a bit grown up. And they were, you know, the heroes were all from the 60s. It's a bit like today. You know, we mm-hmm. kind of go yeah, back yeah. to yeah. that period. Yeah. And so I think when the culture does that, it means that they're either ignoring what's going on in the margins or there isn't anything going on in the margins. But nevertheless, The Enemy was a really cracking read at a pass-on rate of about two or three, selling about 100, 150,000 copies a week. So you've got a million kids close to picking up on, you know, this quite interesting take on pop and popular culture. And, and to put that, I mean, just it's worth just stopping on that and thinking about that many people buying and, and getting in contact reading and relying on this one source of information on a weekly right. basis in one country. Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing kind of Bush Telegraph going mm-hmm. on, which is why you have people like S- Stephen Morrissey writing letters to the music press generally as well. He, he, he was writing to other magazines because let's not forget there was Sounds and Melody mm-hmm. Maker, Disc and Music Echo, and also record mirrors. So it was a very fertile field, some better than the others, but there's a lot of information being pushed out under the guise of or carried through these welter of record releases and live gigs. So, so there are a lot of these very successful weeklies yeah. uh, into which this fortnightly yeah. new project arrived, and you described it as having a colour cover, good paper... It, the other, most of the other magazines we talked about there were the same format, but they were very black and white. The ink came off in your fingers. You had great photographers like Penny Smith, but her work would be absolutely ruined by the time you got to school at the end of the bus journey. Not only were you covered in ink, <laughs> but also the paper was smudgy, covered smudgy. in, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, covered in newsprint. And so that was appealing from the start. The other thing is that um, it was definitely a, an attempt at 
publication which was really on its game at the time, which was Rolling Stone, um, which was publishing, you know, you'll know about Hunter S. Thompson and those people. So it wasn't just music, though in terms of the music, it did tend to reflect on, you know, those acts, same acts, you know, the who, Pete Townsend, Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, Ben in Wings, The Grateful Dead, you know, those American acts who you couldn't really connect to. It was to. still very much, you know, everybody in it had sort of grown up in the, from the yeah. 60s and into the 70s and was sticking with the same crowd. Well, grown up is an interesting phrase in that context because it definitely felt mature in terms of the writing. I mean, there was really excellent mm-hmm. writing um, as well as production values in Rolling Stone. It was also readily available in England you know I can pick it up in London if I wanted to uh, just in the shop down the road in Hendon where I lived in North London so into that comes this definitely a UK attempt at Rolling Stone but it's got a particularly kind of a British slant to it so the first issue has on the cover a Fluck and Law spitting image people uh, rendition of Pete Townsend flying through the air in his white boiler suit uh, and the cover story uh Pete Townsend, Whose Generation, was actually written by this very interesting writer called Penny Valentine, who's been much overlooked, I think, in the story of the kind of male, Boise-led story of the British music press. She was there ever since Disc in the 60s and had left London, become frustrated with the way that she and the other few women who worked in the music industry at the time were, were treated, worked for Elton John at his Rocket Records, went to New York, started supplying um, a reviews back to the music press, and then was lured back to become contributing editor of Street Life. And she wrote this really excellent piece on The Who, and you kind of groan inwardly, and you think, oh, not another bleeding piece on Pete Townsend. You know, pages and pages of his views on everything from spiritualism to the Vietnam War. But in fact, she filtered her understanding of Townsend and The Who through personal reminiscence of being brought up in Soho as the daughter of Italian immigrants. And so she was an incredibly alluring writer, and later on, in uh, Street Life, Short Life, it only lasted nine months, she wrote kind of broadsides about the way uh, female journalists are treated, females in general in the music business are treated. And so she was kind of a beacon of light for those people of, of us who were trying to be a bit more enlightened in our views. The other, there's a couple of other stories. It's interesting, there's a story on boxing, British boxing, mm-hmm. The British heavyweight lineup, Joe Bugner and etc., all interviewed. There's a piece on the film director Richard Fleischer, who made the absolute excruciating Mandingo, but nevertheless, yeah. <laughs> he was a big name at the time. Um, there's um, an overview of the revolution in Portugal, which had occurred the year before mm-hmm. uh, the Salazar dictatorship was failed. So you've got really interesting so, stuff in the mix. Absolutely, and, 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 and you know, I mean, the, the cover of story is, is music, but a lot of the other information and, and, and features in there were very much kind of topical news, yeah. sport. Listings as uh, well. As, because uh, but, but, yeah, yeah. what we have to remember as well is that the other powerhouse, in terms of popular culture on a weekly basis, certainly in London, was Time Out, which was still a radical... Uh, magazine, uh, very left-leaning, uh, campaigning, reporting, but also these really, uh, it, the beauty of it, Tony Elliott, you know, God rest his soul, his brilliance was in drilling down into events. And so you got a full picture of the kind of hive of activity across the arts uh, in London every week. Um, and so 
not only is street life emulating Rolling Stone in its approach, but it's also taking on time out. And that's one of the things that Nick Logan had done at the uh, NME, was to realise that the gig guide, as he called it, across two pages, was really crucial. Mm -hmm. So it's a listings magazine as well, which is really interesting. It's also trying to be a national listings magazine. But the, so, I mean, very ambitious. On. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really ambitious, and you figure there was a lot of money behind it. Mm -hmm. The founders were a couple of people from Sounds, which had been founded four or five years before, actually initially with Rupert Murdoch's money. He invested in it, and he withdrew after a year, and then Spotlight Publications took it up. Sounds was quite a successful uh, anti-enemy and melody maker for a while, but this guy, Billy Walker, who's the editor, and the writer, Mike Flood Page, and others left to form, uh, to launch uh, Street Life. It is rumoured, and it's never been entirely established to anyone's satisfaction, but it's rumoured with money from Chris Blackwell mm -hmm. at Island Records, which is why the kind of secret weapon of Street Life for those of us who were interested was its coverage of reggae. Yeah. That? Yeah, and in on. fact, we've got that. Uh, we've got what we think is the final issue. Yeah. we've got the first and the final, and and it features a uh, a very lush, full colour airbrush image uh, illustration of Bob Marley. Yeah, and this is '76, and so he's broken through with No Woman, No Cry. Mm -hmm. Played the Lyceum mm -hmm. the year before, and it's the report is Jamaica, Bob Marley, Rudy's Rastas, Guns and Ganja, mm -hmm. and so what they're doing is setting this music in the con in the social context of Jamaica. But in the first issue, there's um, one of the, the great writers for Street Life, in my view, was this chap, Idris Walters. Uh, and he wrote uh, a real, really great uh, take on dub, which was really the cutting-edge music of the moment and really influenced production throughout popular music for years to come and still does. Um, and for... Somebody who didn't know that much about it but liked it. You know, I had Whalers Records, um, but it was a real education as well, and it was a celebration of this, this exciting new sound. And that, in turn, led to, and this is why I think Blackwell must have been behind it, it extraordinarily, on the Old Grey Whistle test, you must remember at the time, there was very little music on TV. So you basically got your Top of the Pops on Thursday and the Ogre Whistle Test at half past ten on Tuesday nights on BBC Two, and they had a feature on the first issue of Street Life, and they mentioned how great the Idris Walters thing. So you're thinking, wow, this is really great kind mm -hmm. of 21st century positioning for this title. For this for this new title that yeah. sort of come came out of nowhere. nowhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and as you, as you say, I mean, it, it came out of nowhere, it survived nine months, and... Um, you know, we can look at it now and, and everything we're talking about is it, the writing, its coverage, what it was doing was very innovative and forward-thinking, but it clearly didn't quite meet its audience full-on in a way that was going to help it continue. Yeah, um, Nigel Fountain, who's a writer mm -hmm. uh, who, who worked there, yeah. um, he said that he thinks it's because of the design. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not so sure. The logo was quite lame, I suppose. You know, look at that mm -hmm. logo. It's this kind of spray can against a brick wall, isn't yeah. it? Street yeah. Life is written on there. But um, I'm not so sure that that mattered. I think more that by 76, and you've got to remember, you know, we understand it, the music industry is incredibly conservative. They're not going to take a bet with their advertising budgets on a newspaper which is probably read by 20-somethings and a limited audience. They want to hit up the kids who've got the pocket money to buy the records. 
And so I think the advertising, and it was too diverse an offer. It was too ahead of its time. Because somebody might not be interested in heavyweight boxing yeah. or the Portuguese yeah. revolution. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that, that for me seems to be the kind of way where we would settle is that it was ahead of its time in, in, yeah. in so many ways. For me, I mean, I have to admit, looking back at it now, it was, it was a really important magazine. I remember it vividly, but when I look at it, I, I, I struggle with it. I mean, it's very hard to look at that and actually sort of flip through it and think, wow, this is innovative. Yeah, it's very formal, to, isn't it? It's, it's like yeah. Rolling Stone in yeah. that Rolling Stone applied a formal uh, newspaper presentation to quite radical subject mm -hmm. matter. Like in this last issue, uh, Nigel Fountain, in fact, has written uh, an article headlined Irish gays, nothing changes. Homosexuality too is unpopular in Northern Ireland. I mean, this is interesting stuff. You know, from our point of view, but at the time, it's it's too diffuse for the knuckle-headed music industry. Uh, but also remember, punk is coming. Come nineteen seventy-six, which is yeah. where we are. This is the summer during yeah. which punk was just about to. Yeah. It was exploding for those that knew, but it was about to come that that autumn, yeah. and enemy um, were much more on the ball in, in sort of reflecting that visually and. Well, they. Uh, in fact, it was Sounds um, oh, who were mm -hmm. the first okay. on on the stick with John Ingham, and there was Caroline Coon also working a melody maker who was having to fight really hard. And I cover this in my new book, which hopefully we'll come to. Uh, she was really having to fight very hard against the old male guard there to cover this music made by exciting, mad-looking teenagers who these old farts really didn't want to hear about, and so. And also the enemy, uh, Sid Vicious, had, had attacked Nick Kent. He'd been involved and fallen out with the Sex Pistols. And so the enemy didn't really get onto it in the autumn. The interesting publication we can see now is Sniffing Glue, mm -hmm. which launches yeah, yeah, in yeah. the summer yeah. of 1976. Yeah. And this is the formula that's going to deliver mm -hmm. the messages of punk. If, if we had the first copy of uh, Sniffing Glue on the table and Street Life on the table, they, they're, they're polar opposites, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, there's no colour, obviously, in mm -hmm. Sniffing Glue. It's a Roneoed, as they used to call it, stapled 12 sheets of paper, handwritten headlines, handwritten copy. Um, and it, the first issue came out in July. And 76. Yeah. 1976 and the last issue of Street Life came out on June the 11th 1976 so it's as though these kind of considered people are making way for this new wave literally new wave literally yeah yeah absolutely it's literally handing off the guard yeah um, but nonetheless Street Life still has that role and I remember it very fondly for, for that brief period for things like you know an in-depth interview with Brian Ferry and yeah. put, I mean, uh, at his I, house, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And it, and it was again. It wasn't him as the, in the band. It was him as a sort of auteur, sort of living the life. Art da, collector. Da, da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and I, mean, I don't know whether it's the case, but Street Life was. I mean, that's a Roxy song, isn't it? Well, I think it was a direct tip of the hat to that because really, you know, there is an argument that in those sort of hundred years, seventy four, seventy five, Roxy were one of the bands who were making mm -hmm. it happen and still hitting the charts as well. And Ferry was through his solo albums. There's also intimations of what's coming in Street Life in April, uh, the first issue in April 1976. There's an interview with Malcolm McLaren at his yeah. shop, Sex in the King's Road, where interestingly his band, the band that he managed, the Sex Pistols, had played about 15 gigs by then. It doesn't mention them, but what he talks about is that kids today are hungry for a new movement. They're mm -hmm. hungry for something 
that they that can be theirs that's not their older brothers or sisters or parents you know he talks about making generation gaps so if you read street life you kind of you can decode it as a w looking to the future and maybe that again goes to your uh, view that it was too ahead of its time but it's important that there are magazines like this aren't there these the sort of they might not be a success in their in, in the terms of longevity and finance and, and whatever but they Sometimes it's really it's essential for these sort of publications that throw everything at it, fail, but yeah, fail. They, they are a lasting monument to a very well, particular period. As McLaren said, better a flamboyant failure than any kind of benign success. If we're looking at examples of magazines like Street Life that come and go but, and yet echo through the ages since, what, what other examples come to mind in you? Well, the, I think the greatest one is Collusion, which mm -hmm. was published, uh, five issues published between 1981 and 1983, by a collective which included David Toop, Steve Beresford, Sue Stewart, um, and others, but all of them had come out of um, the experimental music and improvisation. They, they were music. musicians, right? Yeah. They, they were musicians and writers, um, and they wanted to broaden the brief of uh, acceptance of what constitutes popular music. There's an interview in The Enemy with Steve Beresford around that time, and he'd worked with, he was the Flying Lizards, you know, he mm -hmm. produced the Slits, but he'd also produced utterly improvisational, you know, contemporary works as well. And he talks about the fact that there's an Indian singer, uh, whose name I forget now, but there's an Indian singer who's selling 80,000 records a year, but not covered in the enemy. And he's saying, well, why not? You yeah. know, this is a person who's Whose popular. music is it? New yeah. music, but whose new music? And so yeah. Collusion was um, really an investigation of those areas which they felt were neglected and needed championing. They had great writers such as Cynthia Rose, mm -hmm. uh, Stuart Cosgrove, uh, later to kind of try and stage a revolution at the enemy before pitching up at Channel 4. Um, Cheryl Garrett, yeah. who wrote a fantastic piece about being a Bay City Rollers fan, which was published in her and Sue Stewart's book about women in rock. Uh, and she, was, she went to City Limits she and then The Face. Exactly, and ended up editing The Face mm -hmm. you know, during its imperial phase, second phase. Yeah. Um, summer of Love. The, the third Summer of Love, all that stuff. And so... There are all these ideas being hothoused at Collusion. Um, it covered heavy metal, it covered country songs. Mm -hmm. it, they had a, a gay man review gay records before Boys Town and High Energy had really hit. And so his, his choices are really kind of odd from this perspective. But nevertheless, it was really adventurous and obviously doomed to failure. <laughs> but the final... <laughs> so, so, so how many... Uh, I mean, how long did that last? Yeah, five, five issues. The <coughs> final issue mm -hmm. is... Uh, which I'm pleased to say I have a copy of. The cover story is about what they call New York's new underground disco scene, which is really the birth of club culture. And so it's very um, incisively written and um, they really investigate the scenes. There are photographs of Jelly Bean Benitez, there are photographs of Larry Levan uh, playing at the, um, at the Paradise Garage. There's David Bancuso at the loft. And it's about ten pages of absolute information on this club culture which would take, overtake the world, which was, of course, being ignored by the mainstream mm -hmm, music mm -hmm, press. Mm -hmm. um, and so, sadly, um, collusion failed as well. But I think that, that, again, showed a way forward for people like Cheryl Garrett 
uh, at the face to look into subjects with, in much more depth rather than just pure music journalism. And so her great, one of her great pieces for the face is when she went to Chicago uh, to look at the nascent house scene and kind of went off grid. She didn't want to cover the straight record company that had released the compilation, but nipped off with um, Frankie Knuckles and went to you know those discotheques mm-hmm. where house was being incubated. So once again, collusion. You can see that it spores mm-hmm. probably you know relate even to today. Uh, which which brings us nicely to I mean both the both these street life and collusion I assume are covered in, in the book <laughs> you've been are. putting together. Yes. Judging yeah. by your knowledge, yeah. Tell us a bit about the book then. How, how I mean when, when does it's a history of the British music press? It is. It is. Um, I wrote a book, an oral history, called In Their Own Rights, which was, the subtitle was Adventures in the Music Press, mm-hmm. and that was the American and British music press uh, studied uh, from up until 2000 when I published mm-hmm. it. Uh, I was never happy with the book. The oral history is the lazy man's um, mm-hmm. approach to publishing, and I've always, always, always wanted to rewrite it as a narrative. And so uh, I was commissioned by Thames and Hudson, uh, on that basis a few years ago and I produced this uh, the story of the music press it's called The Rise and Fall of the Music Press and so it starts in 1926 with the first issue of Melody Maker which is really the first mm-hmm. music paper very interesting issue the issues of identity race you know there's a lot going on in that first little issue um, and then it goes up until 2000. You know, it's my view that uh, the music press was atomised, not least by the onset of the digital era, but, you know, everything else that has happened to mass culture uh, in recent decades, where music... But, but that, in a way, is an extension of everything we're, we're talking about. You know, the, the, the street life and uh, collusion, the music press, all had their influences, and they all sort of lit, let frog each other and kept going, the ripples carried forward. And now, all so many people from that era are now... They're, they're kind of our generation, they're in senior positions writing for big magazines and newspapers. Yeah, that's true. But I think that the music press, in quotes, is only ever as good as the music that it gets. And in fact, the action has gone away from these forms of music, this, these genres where it was previously really hot. And so in the noughties, there were really great grime magazines like Woofer, which were totally ignored apart from grime enthusiasts. So, so it was a it's a specialist uh, area, but it, nonetheless, it was a really great music magazine. The atomization of uh, the music press has meant that you can read really excellent pieces on music in places like the London Review of Books, where Ian Penman wrote one of the best pieces I've read in a long time. It's no surprise, really. He's always been a great writer, but he wrote about Solange. Uh, and you imagine the effect of that on London Review of Books readers. But then you've got Jude Rogers, who came out of the word and is really excellent uh, music writer who's writing much more widely about music. She has much wider vision of popular music's place. Uh, and also Kate Mossman, who's really, you know, delivering fantastic stuff for the new statement. She comes, it's no coincidence, she comes out of that same stable hothouse by Mark Ellen and David Hepworth, who's whose lives are intertwined with this story, uh, whether you like it or not, but I happen to like it, you know, uh, and because they've given so many people their heads since the late 70s. So music press is kind of everywhere 
and nowhere now. It's it's no longer resides in these newsprint titles like it did all those years ago. Um, well, Paul, thank you for joining us. Uh, so the, the book is due... Uh, in book, September. Yeah, and exactly. the title is? Uh, the Rise and Fall of the Music Press. Great. Well, thank you very much. No, it's been great to talk to you. That wraps up this episode. Thanks very much to John and Paul for joining us. And if you enjoyed it, please let people know. See you next time. In the meantime, don't forget, check out the flat plan, the masterclass that's happening in a few weeks' time. See you next time. Bye.